0: And I was on the radio, effing and blinding, and whoever was operating the camera was down on me. And you can see my lips very clearly to see what I was saying.
1: To say I'm excited to introduce this week's guest is an understatement. The man is a Formula One legend an engineer whose Williams cars won nine Constructors' World Championships and the men driving them seven Drivers' Titles. I'm talking, of course, about Sir Patrick Head. Welcome, everyone, to Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson. Patrick was Frank Williams' business partner and technical director. Together, they formed Williams Grand Prix Engineering in 1977 and they won their first race just two years later. After that, they didn't stop winning for a quarter of a century. They produced some of the fastest, most technically advanced cars the sport has ever seen. And the best drivers in the world wanted to race for them and usually did. Patrick was quite simply a brilliant engineer And as well as his phenomenal understanding of how to make a fast racing car, he understood engines and gearboxes like few others. The way in which he helped Honda develop their V6 turbo into a race winner in the early 80s was nothing short of astounding. But for all the good times, there were also some hugely difficult moments. The aftermath of the road car accident in 1986, which left Frank a quadriplegic, had Patrick worrying about the futures of both his friend and the business they ran together. And it was the same after the death of Ayrton Senna. The weeks and months following Imola 94 required exceptional strength from everyone at Williams. Patrick talks about all of this and much more over the next 90 minutes. He's a fascinating man I hope you enjoy our conversation. Patrick, it's lovely to have you on the show. Thank you very much for your time. So first up, how are you? Where are you?
0: Uh, I'm extremely well, thanks, Tom. And I'm in Cagliari, which is right in the south of Sardinia. My uh, wife, Monica, her family comes from Cagliari. And we've had a small flat here for nine or 10 years or so and have come up and down. And now we've got, uh, the flat's not that big, but we've got a flat with a nice big planted terrace with a swimming pool of it. And I live in complete and utter luxury down here, yeah. That sounds absolutely lovely. Um, Look, do you stay in touch with Formula One? If um, I look over my shoulder too much and spend too much time thinking about formula one monica gives me a hard time and uh, tells me that life is about the here and now and the future and not the past and so I, I don't spend an awful lot of time on it but i am in touch with Jos capito who i've known for some time but i don't have any idea that i ring them up and advise them how they should develop the car or anything like that <laughs> but i am in touch with them yeah
1: And does it give you a warm feeling when you see both of their drivers finishing in the points, the Williams drivers?
0: Well, they were obviously assisted by that uh, front end uh, first corner accident. So they're not really there yet on merit. So they've got a little bit of a way to go before they're there. But I think the people in place are good. The determination is good. I don't know very much about the funding myself, but I I understand that is in place. So uh, having been involved with Williams for whatever it was, 35, 40 years, many of which we were winning races. And I mean, I retired in 2011, the end of 2011. Uh, I'd have to say not every year that I was involved were we winners, but for the majority, uh, so it's been a little sad over the last 10 years to see them performing quite weekly. So I'm very pleased to see them coming back. And I think uh, Jost and his the people he brought in, they, they have some very good people there who have been there for some time, but they need better leadership at the top. And I think they've got that now.
1: Good. Well, let's hope. Exciting times ahead. And. Monica, if you're listening, now's the moment perhaps for you to go and do something else, because I do want to talk to Patrick about the past. Let's start with an overview, Patrick. How do you reflect on your Formula One career now?
0: I don't spend an awful lot of time looking backwards. And in truth, if I look backwards, and it's maybe the reason why I don't spend a lot of time looking backwards, I mostly think about the missed opportunity and the things we should have done better. People start asking me about what happened in races that we won. I will say, well, I don't really remember. And quite a lot, because my interest was in the development of the company, development of the engineering capability of the company, design on those aspects of the design of which I think I was probably reasonably competent, which was probably the more sort of mechanical, you know, I I was probably stronger on gearboxes and uprights and hubs and hardware. I'm not saying that I had no knowledge about the aerodynamics. Of course, you can't uh, be involved in Formula One. Unfortunately, aerodynamics have a sort of 95% influence on the performance of the car, but uh, I was probably more involved in the mechanical elements. And I can't say that all of the standing around and talking and traveling, after a bit, that waned with me. So we had very good people, and I'm not suggesting that it was interested then, but people like Frank Dernie in the sort of late 80s and early 90s, and obviously Adrian Newey when he was with us, they were very competent at running the cars and deciding on setup. So I maybe only went to half of the races or maybe even less than half of the races. So it didn't really interest me all that much about being in the pit lane and that side. The engineering more interested me than anything else and the operating with a complex group of people and trying to get the best out of them back at the factory, you know, cuz you you had maybe 50 or 60 people in the later days at the track, but you had 500 back at the factory, and that's where
1: the car was made quicker or slower. I understand the engineering thrill for you. I understand the business side of it. But also, how much of a racer were you? I mean, did you enjoy moments like Silverstone 87 when Mansell hunted down PK for the win? Did you get a kick out of that side of it as well?
0: I must have done, Tom. It's a hell of a long time ago now. I can't say at any time, that I favoured one driver over the other in our team. Some of the drivers might have thought that, but it wasn't actually true. In fact, probably, I mean, the reason that Nigel came in for a pit stop, here I am remembering that race, it was quite an outstanding one, but he came in for a pit stop because I think we must have thrown a, a balance weight off and he had enormous vibration through his steering In fact, we probably hadn't twigged how much degradation affected the speed of the car over the life of the tyre, because as the tyre rubber, it's not really tread, but let's call it the the rubber surface, as it got thinner, the energy generated by its distortion became less and the tyre started running cooler. And as it ran cooler, the grip level reduced. So if you can come in and put a new set of tyres on with new rubber that's thicker, you can uh, be faster. And probably Nigel, although he was driving out of his you know, boots in there because he was very determined to get back and beat Nelson, it probably was to his advantage that he pit-stopped halfway through the race. But uh, Nigel, you mentioned him. I mean, he was a great favourite of the British crowd. I was a little bit disappointed in a, a film that I did happen to see that was in recent years about Williams' history, that it was a little bit denigrating of Nigel. And I, I think that was very unfair because Nigel won over 30 Grand Prix, of which only two were with Ferrari. So he must've won near 30 with Williams. He was by far the most outstanding driver. And yes, he was a fairly unusual personality but we employed him to drive racing cars quickly. And that's what he did. If he was on the track, testing or, or racing, he was electric. And the crowd knew that. He gave
1: everything. He was a fantastic driver. Patrick, let's talk more about Nigel then. Why did you sign him for 85? Because at that time, he'd yet to win a race. And Peter War, the boss of Lotus, hadn't been, how do we put this politely, overly complimentary about him. So what did you see in him back in those earlier days? Well, sadly, Peter War is
0: dead now. So I will actually quote him in that at Monaco, when Nigel was in the lead and put his tower in the wet over a white line going up the hill and literally threw the race away, Peter War was well quoted as saying, Nigel Mansell will not win a race as long as I have a hole in my arse. And uh, he was actually (laughs) wrong. What did I see? I have to say, and I'm not trying to take credit where credit is not due, but we were looking to employ a driver alongside Keki. And I think we had Jack Lafitte at the time in the car. And Jack was a fantastic. Guy, a great member of the team, in fact, a very skillful driver, incredible finesse. But he didn't have quite the heart that the likes of Nigel and, say, Alan Jones had in terms of laying it all on the line in the race. So we, we decided we wanted to take on another driver. I was very keen to have a driver who had driven with a Renault engine behind him because we had the Honda engine, and it was very immature as an engine. It was either all or nothing. You put your foot on the throttle, you waited for however long it happened to be, and then suddenly you got 800 horsepower or something.
1: So, yeah, we're, we're talking about the turbo in particular. The right? turbo, yeah. yes. Well, this was turbo time. We
0: started running the Honda Turbo at the, the last race in 1983. So through 1984, we ran with Keke and Jack and with a very immature Honda turbo engine, which was very unreliable. And Mr. Kawamoto, the head of Honda Waco then, who was the people who developed the Honda racing engine, he came to the Dutch Grand Prix and saw for himself that they had completely underestimated the challenge. And when he went back to Tokyo, to his credit, he brought in senior engineer to oversee the project and brought in all the right people. He put everything in place to make it happen. And by the early races of 1985, it really started to come together. The, the fruits of his decisions then really started to come together.
1: What was Nigel saying about that Honda when he compared it to the Renault? Did he say you were miles behind or, or that the gap was actually quite close?
0: When he first started driving, I think he did a test right at the end of 1984, and he was not very complimentary. (laughs) And Nigel being (laughs) Nigel, uh, he said it exactly as he saw it, which really was exactly what Honda, Honda needed. Having just climbed out from driving with a Renault engine behind him, and probably the Renault engine at that time, 1984, was probably the class of the field, and to Honda's credit, they very much listened to him. I can't say, you know, Nigel didn't say you need a different compression ratio and you need this and that. All he could say is, this is what's wrong with the engine. You know, that the throttle control is terrible. He would describe in great detail what his problem was with the throttle control. And they sat down and listened and asked him questions. And they went away and got the job done. And early in 1984, we had what was called the D-spec engine, which not only had uh, a much smaller bore, longer stroke, but it also had a lot of piston cooling, many things that made it robust so that they could then give it absolute stick through the turbocharging and... Uh, inlet pressure. I mean, when we first got the engine in 1983, it had inlet manifolds that were incredibly tall and stuck out the top of the bodywork. By the time we started winning races in middle of 1985, the inlet manifold was
1: incredibly short. So response times were very quick. Talking of response times, this is all pre-internet, isn't it? And I mean, I remember my first trip to Japan 25 years ago and how different the place is now compared to then. Can you just tell us how difficult were the logistics of a relationship with Honda back then?
0: They had been running with Spirit and I didn't really meet any of the people within Spirit. But I had worked with Ron Toronak previously part-time when I was building a boat in the Surrey Docks. and I I went and gave him a hand when he was doing his Trojan Formula 5000 car and then Formula One car. I didn't know Jack Brabham well, but I had met Jack Brabham through Ron Toranek. And Honda were very influenced by Jack Brabham and Ron Toranek. The two of them said you will have to wait too long for spirit to develop themselves to be a competitive Formula One team. They had done a very good job in Formula Two and won the Formula Two championship, but to learn about Formula One was probably gonna be three or four years with Spirit. So we have to thank Ron Taranac and Jack Brabham, both sadly dead now, for literally guiding Honda to us. It was remarkable, it's difficult to put across A chap turned up, not a Japanese, but an English guy with a van and a cylinder block with heads on it and sump of the V6 engine was put on the floor in our R&D place. Three different lengths of inlet manifold that bolted on the top of it, a cardboard box with two turbochargers in it, no exhaust manifold, and that was about it and no paperwork at all. And in those days, in the office, the front office on the ground floor down below my office up above, I could hear all the way through the day this clack, 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 clack of a Telex machine. And that's how we communicated overseas was by Telex. Long forgotten now. I sent a Telex to Honda in Japan to the Honda R&D Waco place where they, operated from, saying, could they please send how many kilowatts of energy we had to dissipate in the water system, in the oil? And a lot of you know, what peak running water temperature wanted, they wanted what peak running oil temperature. And could they either send us an exhaust manifold or give us the dimensions of an exhaust manifold? It was quite a long telex with a lot of precise questions on it. I, I think somewhere in my probably storeroom downstairs, I have the return telex, which said, dear Mr. Head, please design what you think. And that was it. Really? Nothing nothing else. That was it. And we had a, a lovely guy, a South African, called Gary Thomas, who worked for us in our design office at the time. He had worked with Ron Toronak at Rolt before as well, but he came to work. I had actually worked with Gary at... Um, Wolf racing way back in the mid to late 70s. He was a very dour but great sense of humor South African, still alive, thank goodness, although I'm very surprised. But he used to, because he used to motorbike race at weekends and he'd come in every Monday morning, he'd have gravel rash all over him from where he'd come off his motorbike. But anyway, Gary knew quite a bit about engines and he had a good understanding of the basic linear mathematics of cooling systems and that sort of thing. So I said to Gary, Gary, you get on with this Honda engine installation and I'll get on with it. We We did what was going to be just an intermediate car because I thought we know so little about this. We've got to have a car to go out and go testing. So we produced what was quite an ugly but actually basically reasonably sound car the fw09 i think it was pretty basic but produced pretty quickly and gary did a fantastic job of the installation in the first year we overdid it we had too much cooling on the car uh, and we were able to downsize a bit overall but gary did a great job on the understanding the requirements for the engine installation I can't say that I didn't go along and have a chat with him and we didn't compare, but I had to give Gary most of the
1: credit. That shows what trust Honda had in you.
0: Yes, I think, quite honestly, Ron Taranek must have given me, I can't think why, but he must have given me a decent report. <laughs> yeah, they did, really, but they had a lot to get on with themselves and they had a very, very... I mean, when we first had the Honda engine, it was their chief mechanic, a lovely guy called Mr Hadji, and about four or six others, and that was it. And um, Hadji had been chief mechanic. Not that, you know, mechanics these days, it's a word that covers, you know, mechanics these days walk out with very expensive briefcases and, uh, uh, you know, fly business class, you know, maybe there's the odd one that flies first class, I have no idea. But um, Hadji literally ran everything and Mr. Kawamoto in Japan, he was an insomniac, so he wouldn't sleep much in the night. And most of the Formula Two engine was drawn by Mr. Kawamoto, who had a drawing board alongside his bed, apparently, because he didn't sleep very much. And he would be drawing the that V6 Formula Two engine that became the basis of the Formula One engine.
1: So, Patrick, given How much do you put into developing this Honda turbo engine in 84? Of course, Keke Rosberg winning in Dallas that year. Then the big successes come in 85, 86, 87. You're winning championships for them. How much of a kick to you was it that they went with McLaren in 88 and left you? Did you feel they were being particularly disloyal?
0: Yes, I did. But in this the competitive world of Formula One motor racing, you, you don't uh, sulk, you know, when you're presented with a new situation. You, and I would sit down with Frank and we'd talk it through and we'd make our decisions. But you've got to remember that they also provided Lotus with engines in 1986 or, and 7, I think. They were understandably very enamoured with Ayrton Senna. Ayrton Senna was a very intelligent fellow and he could see that the writing was on the wall in 85, that Honda were coming up. Renault was supplying engines to Lotus. I have no idea whether Ron Dennis approached Ayrton Senna. Ayrton Senna did not sit back and let things happen around him. It may well have been that Ayrton Senna approached Ron Dennis and decided to go and get the Honda engine. I know Ron and Ayrton flew to Japan and persuaded Honda to supply them with the engine. But we sort of dealt with Honda supplying another team. Honda had seen, uh, not that we had that much dirty linen, but I think in 84, we must have changed engine 60 times because the Honda engine kept blowing up. So they were seeing us in the most difficult of positions. And we were learning, you know, we had... uh, turbo hoses blow off and things that, you know, a good engineering group just really shouldn't have happened. So we were learning a lot and Honda were visibly seeing that. So they probably thought that McLaren were absolutely wonderful and everything was great there. And they were very, very enamored with Ayrton Senna and how much of it was Ron and how much of it was Ayrton. But the idea of putting together the super team with Alan Prost, who you've got to remember, was King then and Ayrton Senna and the Honda engine and McLaren. Obviously, they presented themselves beautifully, which was very much down to wrong. So it was the sort of super team of super teams. And I think Honda were a bit amazed when they provided Lotus with the engines. They thought Lotus would blow us away. In fact, it turned out the other way round that we blew Lotus away and Senna away in 1987. But we won not only the Constructors' Championship in 87 by a very large amount, but we were first and second in the Drivers' Championship. So to be told by... We weren't told by Honda that they wouldn't provide us with engines. They told us, keep Nelson Piquet lose Nigel Mansell and take on Satoru Nakajima from Lotus because they weren't going to supply Lotus. And Frank and I sat down and I think we said, well, we're not going to play second fiddle to McLaren. We competed with McLaren through the Cosworth days. And generally I think we beat them. Uh, (laughs) And to have McLaren with the Honda engine that we had gone through a lot of pain with with Alan Frost and the Ed and Senna, we could see, and with us, with Nelson Piquet, and who was, you know, very good, but with Nakajima, who was not really quite in the same class, we knew we couldn't beat McLaren with that thing. So we said, no, thank you. But they they offered us to carry on, but as second fiddle, and Frank and I did not want to play
1: second fiddle. You've mentioned Frank on several occasions, and of course... You were business partners. Can you tell us why it worked so well between the two of you? We respected each other's capability.
0: Well, I doubt whether well you'll ever hear this broadcast. Between you and I, nobody else knowing at all. He really did not know much about the engineering of Formula One. But he was clever enough to know that and he treated it as a bit of a joke. I could see all the problems ahead in any time. And I'm not saying for one moment I was a depressive. I was never a depressive. But Frank, he was like that puppet on television, Tigger. It didn't matter what was failing, what was happening. Frank could put his head on the pillow at 10 o'clock at night and boom, he was out. And wake up at 8 o'clock in the morning fully refreshed and come to work saying, OK, chap, let's go for it, you know. He was always totally positive, whereas I could foresee problems that Frank just wasn't even aware of uh, and didn't even look for. So we made a good mix between the two of us. And if ever I sat down in Frank's office and said, oh, Frank, you know, this problem, that problem, Frank would say, don't worry, chap, we'll sort it out. You know, he wouldn't necessarily <laughs> tell me how to do it, but he was always very positive, And
1: that was very good for me. Did you agree on most things or would you have a stand-up row if you disagreed or or how would disagreements overcome?
0: Sometimes we'd have the good manners to talk things through. If Frank, I thought, was taking a direction which I thought was completely and utterly wrong, then uh, I'm a a complete pussycat now, uh, Tom, but I'm told in those days I had a reputation of being fairly aggressive. And if I thought Frank was completely barking up the wrong tree, then I think I'd tell him so. I might have used the word no. Frank was, you know, the main man. He was the the majority owner of Williams Grand Prix Engineering. It carried his name. But I think I was probably a fairly robust character in those days. And uh, if I felt a particular direction was completely wrong,
1: uh, I would tell him so. But he would defer to you on all engineering matters. Equally, you would defer to him when it came to money and driver lineups? I probably interfered in his side more than he interfered in my
0: side, I would say. Driver lineups we would talk about, and we were talking earlier about taking on Nigel Mansell, because we were looking at Derek Warwick, who I'm sure would have been an excellent choice because he also had been driving with the Renault engine. It was most important for us because Keki was a real seat-of-the-pants driver and he was fantastic, but he would drive anything you gave him. And if the engine had nothing and then a 1,000 horsepower, his attitude was, well, if that's what I've got, that's what I've got. And nobody but Keki could have won that race in... Dallas with a car in a car park covered in gravel with a with an engine that was all or nothing we knew we needed somebody who had driven with a Renault engine or or a good turbo engine behind them and it came down to Derek Warwick and Nigel i think there was a bit of iffing and not being certain and i got up and said look frank this has been going on far too long my vote's for nigel and i got up and went to work <laughs> and, uh, uh, I'm not saying just on my word, but it turned out to be a great choice. And Nigel won nearly 30 of our Grand Prix and was a great, great team member and justifies no criticism from anybody.
1: What about the dynamic between you and Frank after his car crash? How did that change? It certainly changed.
0: Frank, as is well known... I mean, I think he's the oldest quadriplegic by decades. And the positive attitude that I spoke about before, he applied to his, his life. He was always very keen to compete, but I wouldn't say he played a major part in decision-making. I mean, we, we lost him. He was completely out of it for six months after his accident in the London hospital on his back. I think he clinically either died or was very near. I think he had lots of tubes in him. And I think every now and then the tubes would come out of his stomach and go into his lungs. I think his lungs filled up with water a number of times. And um, his continued life was very much owed to Ginny, his wife, sadly dead now, because she was with him much of the time and very many of these times she would jump on top of him and literally pump his lungs out. Again, another, it shows how old I'm getting because uh, a lot of these people are sadly not with us anymore, but the great Sid Watkins was in charge at the London hospital and he said to Ginny, Ginny, you should let him go. The quality of his life is gonna be so poor if he recovers from this that you should just let him go. And she just wouldn't do that. And so he owed the part of his life post 1986, early 86, when he had his accident very much to his wife Ginny. I think he was aware of that. And she wrote a book called A Different Kind of Life, because before his accident, he was you know, he was, as I said, he was like Tigger. He was, a, I mean, very annoying at times, but <laughs> bounding with energy and going off for 20-mile runs all the time. And uh, Is it true that he went for a run every day? Every day,
1: yeah. Did you ever join him?
0: No, uh, no, no, I was never, <laughs> ever. In fact, there was a picture that had been seen of, must have been sort of the early days with Alan Jones, 1979 or something, 78 maybe it was, with... Frank and Alan, both in tracksuits, running off from our first factory. Well, I think as soon as the photographer had that picture, Alan turned around and walked back to the factory and came in for a cup of tea (laughs) 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 because Alan was not a runner and uh, (laughs) uh, it was very much stayed. But Frank would have gone on and done 10 miles. He did 10 miles every day and uh, was very fit. And I think when they had that running race around Silverstone with, and a lot of the people in Formula One were runners and Frank won it by miles. You know, he was, uh, he was a serious runner. He didn't do full marathons very often, but he used to do half marathons. And he was actually coming back from a test at Ricard in early 1986, March 1986, driving faster than he should have been To come back to do a half marathon on the Sunday morning. It was on a Saturday afternoon when he went off the road and the car turned, he turned the car over in a ploughed field and uh, broke his neck.
1: Can you remember where you were when you heard the news of that accident?
0: I think it was a Saturday evening and I think I was at home, which would have been unusual because normally Saturdays were a full working day for me and many Sundays I was living then in a house quite close to the factory. And I got a call. I think it might've been from Peter Windsor who was in the car with Frank at the time, but uninjured. It might've been from Bernie, Bernie Ecclestone. And I drove over to Ginny's house and Bernie set up so that we could fly out the next morning on his aeroplane from, I think, Biggin Hill to see Frank in the hospital. We went into this hospital in Marseille and this French doctor who spoke very little English came out of the sort of emergency room, shaking his head, literally telling Ginny that Frank was gone, you know, that he, was, he, he wasn't gonna survive. But Ginny was determined that he would and he was flown home in, I think, a specialised hospital aeroplane, not uh, with all the sort of support systems, and went into the London hospital under Sid Watkins' control. And Ginny moved to staying in a hotel down there near the hospital. Uh, She and I had a talk, and it was very clear that I was going to run things at the factory. We had a very nice marketing man sheridan thin then again sadly dead and sheridan looked after the commercials and our sponsors at the time and i looked after the running of the factory and the operational side of the company and we didn't really although frank turned up in a wheelchair at i think hungary it it was a sham really we we didn't see frank um in any participatory way for at least
1: a year until early 1986, I would say. Was that 86 season the hardest of your career?
0: Well, it's a long time ago now, Tom. I suspect it was. I think I went to Japan. Mr. Kawamoto, when he set up the Honda WACO Formula One team in a structured way, he brought in an engineer called Ichiban Ichida, lovely guy, very capable. But he brought in a manager, a program manager called Sakurai. And he was one tough piece of work. If Sakurai said to somebody, jumped, they jumped. And every now and then when I'd go out to Japan, it was interesting because I think I went 11 times or something. The telephone would ring alongside my bed at home, probably at 4.30 4.30 or 5 o'clock in the morning, and it would be, Patrick-san, come to Japan. And I would say, Sakurai-san, do you realize what time it is? Come to Japan, he'd say. And he'd say, first-class ticket at the airport, pick it up, come to Japan, next plane. And I didn't really have any alternative. So I would get up, pack a bag, and this would be maybe Monday or Tuesday before a Grand Prix, I would go down to Heathrow, go to the Japan Airlines desk, pick up my ticket, get on the airplane, fly to Osaka airport, be picked up by a taxi, driven to a hotel in uh, the capital and be given 30 minutes to have a wash and a brush up. Then I would go down to a meeting room, which would have a table 30 feet long in it with curved sides on each side, and there would be one chair for me on one side, and there would be 30 Japanese on the other side, the specialists in every activity, whether it's the turbocharger activity, the electronics band, whatever. And I would have four to six hours of drubbing, everything that they'd noticed, everything that they'd seen, every failure, They would record every speed trap so they'd have the things that they'd say, why McLaren 10 kilometers an hour faster in this corner? Why this? Why that? Why turbocharger hose blow off? Why the, you know, and it would go. So it would be really aggressive questioning. And I think I told myself really early on that they were trying to get me riled So I gave myself a dose of calm down on everything, and I gave them logical answers, or as I saw it, logical answers for every question. And they would have a typical board with pens, and they'd stand up and they'd do this. They didn't really know much about what made a car quick or slow, but it was a very good exercise, and it gave me an idea of the disciplined way they went about things because Williams up to that point had been a little bit a band of brothers. You know, you had myself, Frank Durney, Gary Thomas, you had people, you know, we probably had eight or nine in the design office, you know, whereas Honda had 80 or something, you know, completely different exercise. So it gave me an idea of the different way of operating when you have a very big setup and the structured way in which they they did things. So it was a learning exercise for me as well. But then Sakurai at the end of it would say, okay, wash, clean, meet downstairs, half an hour. So downstairs, it was after a quick shower or whatever, downstairs, and there would be uh, cars to pick us up. And we'd go out to this restaurant, maybe just the senior engineers, maybe eight of us. And we'd go into these an eating place where you'd have these uh, thin screens that would be pulled. And the Japanese waitress would come in with the food, beautiful Kobe beef, tender beef, very... And it would all be incredibly friendly, lots of joking, laughing, and uh, what a complete change from the steely atmosphere of the meeting room. Then we would go to a a sort of club. It wasn't really a nightclub. It would be a, a karaoke club on the first floor up above, and there would be these very pretty girls that would come around and fill your glass. The first time you took a sip of your whiskey, a uh, girl would come around and tip it up with it and fill it up to the brim again. So you had to work hard in not getting drunk. Uh, but you'd be sitting down there after the meal, so I don't think we were eating but there was whiskey and then everybody, including myself, so luckily there's no recording of it, Tom, uh, had to stand up and sing things like, uh, I did it my way, or whatever it was. (laughs) You'd get to about one o'clock in the morning and Sakurai would say, okay, we go home. He would go off and all the other engineers would depart and I would be taken back to the hotel And I would be on a plane very often the next morning, very often directly to the race meeting of the next weekend's race meeting because the timing would work out that I needed to do that. So by the end of that year, I was absolutely exhausted. And it's a very long answer because we were competing for the championship. There was nothing in any contract between Nelson and Nigel. Nothing that said Nelson got the spare car, nothing. I read the contracts very carefully. And Nelson said to me, Frank told me I would have the spare car contracted. He wasn't being unfair. He was just repeating what Frank had told him. But the problem was it wasn't written down anywhere. And Frank wasn't conscious to tell me these things. So I was running the team in a very, you know, you get it this weekend, you get it this weekend. I was trying to be very fair to Nigel. And Nelson, by this time, was probably a twice world champion. And Nigel had won two or three races the season before. I think Nelson thought that Nigel would be a pushover and was probably a bit surprised
1: to find that Nigel was bloody quick. Nelson was quick as well, mind you. Patrick, this story of Piquet and Mansell reminds me of Alonso and Hamilton at McLaren in 2007. I think Alonso... Was, was, the, was the PK in your team and Hamilton was the Mansell in a way. And, and Alonso thought Hamilton would be a pushover. And of course, it didn't happen. And it all got quite acrimonious, didn't it? I think there's a lot of truth in that, Tom. But anyway, it ended up with a, a about
0: probably May, June, Frank was semi-conscious for some of the day in the London hospital, and Nelson, probably not really understanding how heavily injured Frank was, insisted on having a meeting in Frank's hospital bedroom and me going down there. And we went in there and Nelson was saying, Frank, and, and you had to, I think Frank was just looking up at the ceiling or whatever. And Frank was, Nelson would say, Frank, you told me I'd have the spare car and this and that and whatever. And I had to sort of look above Frank and say, Frank, is this true or whatever? And Frank sort of blinked. I'm not sure he could speak at that time because he had so many tubes in his mouth. I think he blinked to say, yes, it's true. Give Nelson what he wants. So from then on, Nelson had the spare car. But the problem was Nigel was doing a lot of winning. And then we got down to the last race of the year in which our two drivers both were in the pan seats for winning the championship, and Alan Pross was in a a very small opportunity of doing so. And we'd had one or two Goodyear tyre failures, but Goodyear were very, as you would do be if you were a tyre company, they were very, well, they must have picked up a nail or they must have done, it. They, they took all the bits of tyre away But it wasn't just us. There had been five or six tyre failures, notably at Imola at the Tamburello corner. And um, we had a tyre failure with Nigel.
1: Colossally, it's Mansell. Yes. One of my favourite Murray Murray Walker quotes. And literally, I was in a position then on the pit
0: wall with Nigel having a tyre failure and Nelson's tyres... Nelson was then either in the lead or whatever he was, he was in the world championship position. But by the end of the race, Nelson's tyres were going to be a few laps older than Nigel's tyres had been at the time it, his tyre failed. So I had a difficult decision to make. So I called Nelson in and we changed tyres and he went out. And for anybody that records these things, Nelson was closing on Alan Prost. At a massive rate, and I think at the end of the race meeting, missed overtaking him by two seconds or something like that. Another lap, and he almost certainly would have got him. How did Nelson
1: feel about that after the race?
0: Nelson was brilliant. He never, ever, and I've never read anything about recriminations from Nelson in the pits. He did not give himself the licence to, you know, say to a journalist in Brazil, if Patrick hadn't called me and I would have been the 1987 world champion, he would have been. So I'd say Nelson was absolutely stunning. So He was scurrilous in many ways, uh, Nelson. He was a lovely, lovely chap, very funny, but he was a complete nutter gent in, in his uh, relations with the people he, he worked with. Very professional.
1: How acrimonious did it get between Nelson and Nigel? How difficult to manage was it from your point of view?
0: I can't say that I involved myself that much. And I can't say that I would have been massively tolerant. But I think Nelson, I mean, I said he was a complete nutter gent. In his relations with other drivers, I understand he was pretty scurrilous. He didn't like the fact that Ayrton was beginning to take over his public in Brazil. And I think Nelson wasn't that fair in some of the rumours that he put out about Ayrton. And I think Nelson, I mean, on the one hand, you can say it's quite funny. But on the other hand, I mean, I think he paid at Hockenheim some people in the crowd opposite the pits to jump up and down with boards saying Nigel's a fool or or whatever it was. Anyway, he did not use his activities on the track totally to undermine Nigel. So it did get quite acrimonious, but I very much involved myself in trying to make sure that I was fair and delivering themselves equal equipment. Just to finish off and not be, there's actually, uh, I only remember it because it was quite sort of outstanding in that at Hockenheim, Nelson was in the lead with Nigel behind, and Nigel came on the radio and said, my tyres are really bad. I need to come in for a pit stop and replace my tyres. And so we got tyres. Those days, now you couldn't do that because the tyres weren't driver allocated. But I think Nelson had talked to the man who did the radios. So Nelson was hearing our radio signals to Nigel and what Nigel was saying, I mean, Nelson was a real, he was a real character, no doubt about it. And Nigel was probably, I don't know, 15 seconds behind Nelson at the time. But we said to Nigel on the radio, okay, Nigel, we've got your tires in the pit lane, come in for tires. And lo and behold, without saying anything, in the pit lane came Nelson with no, no message to us saying, I'm coming in for Taz. But Nelson came in, stopped in the pits, up on the jacks, brr, 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 on went Nigel's new Taz. And I had to get on the radio to say to Nigel, don't come in for Taz, Nigel, next lap. And, and I was on the radio effing and blinding and whoever was operating the camera was down on me, and you can see my lips very cleanly <laughs> to see what I was saying. Uh, and there was no mistake God. in what I was saying.
1: Wonderful stories.
0: It was yeah. very funny, anyway. I wasn't funny for Nigel at the time. The next lap,
1: we got Nigel on with New Zealand. Nelson was a scurrilous piece of work. I love hearing about all the Williams drivers. What kind of driver excelled at your team?
0: We liked real fighters. I mean, I think, uh, rightly or wrongly, Frank and I got uh, accused of being not quite in love with Alan Jones because there was nothing silly about that. But we liked fighting drivers, drivers who liked to scrap, and certainly Alan in the car or out of the car (laughs) liked to scrap. He was a real character. I think at Imola one time, Charlie Crichton Stewart, who was... uh, Again, another person sadly dead. But he sort of operated on our marketing side, got on very well with Alan. And I think he'd taken Alan out to a sponsor thing outside the paddock. And when they were coming back in, they were pushing through a crowd of people. And a number of people were tugging at Alan, asking him to turn round and give a picture and have a picture with his girlfriend and whatever. And I don't think Alan was, you know, it wouldn't have been a first response, but I think whatever, some guy had really got his goat and was tugging at him over and over and over again. And Alan turned around and gave him an uppercut. And with Alan, you only needed one punch and the guy would be out cold. I mean, in, in South Africa, In 1980 or 81, Alan's car failed him. I think the engine had failed early. And we were sponsored by Leyland Vehicles at the time. Leyland had a big place where they had a lot of trucks down by Lukop, one of the bends, Crowthorne or something, one of the bends at uh, South African Circuit. And there was some pretty girls that Leyland had to promote their products. And one of these girls was up in the driving seat of the truck and Alan was standing alongside having his picture taken with the girl up in the truck looking down on him during the race. And this very boorish South African came along and he was obviously quite drunk and started making unpleasant comments towards this girl. And Alan, I think politely, asked him to back off and stop making these comments, and he didn't. So Alan literally dropped him with one uppercut punch. Apparently Alan's father father was even more pugilistic, uh, Stan, but this chap happened to be the number one importer of Leyland vehicles into South Africa. (laughs) You couldn't make that up. And (laughs) Alan laid him out cold. Apparently, he was out cold for 20 minutes and they had to pour (laughs) buckets of ice water on top of him. Whatever. Uh, I wouldn't say this happened that often, but when when Alan gave somebody a a punch, you knew all about it. So we did have some robust drivers. But then, sadly, recently, Carlos Reutemann died. He was the most lovely character considering that he was a very handsome in a rather aggressive looking way, but a very handsome, tall bloke. He had the most wonderful manners. And we, we really did get on with him well. But we had, you know, he should have won the 1981 World Championship. He didn't. We liked him so much that we would have carried on with him in 1982. He did come back. But then when the battle with the Argentina went out, he rang up Frank and said, look, Frank, it's all become too difficult. I think I'm going to pull back.
1: Patrick, is that really why he, he retired after, what was it, two races of 82, was because of the Falklands War?
0: I think there were a number of factors. He rang up Frank and he said, uh, we brought in Kecky into the team and Kecky turned out to be very, very quick. And when, when uh, Carlos first met Kecky, Frank said, what do you make of Keki? And he said, I don't know, Frank. I'm doing a rather bad version of Carla. I don't know, Frank. The gold Rolex, the Gucci briefcase, the Gucci shoes. I think he thought Keki was a bit showy, you know. And, uh, but then when we, when we started racing, he also knew Keki was bloody fast. And I'm yeah. not suggesting for one moment that Carlos didn't think he could beat him, but he knew to beat Keki in the same car was going to be hard work. And I think it was, I mean, by that time he was near 40. So Carlos was uh, getting on a bit. I think there were a lot of people in Argentina that were saying to him, Carlos, you must come into the political environment. He was a a farmer, Carlos, soybean farmer. And uh, I think there were a number of factors altogether that came together. The Brits and the Argentinians being at battle, that must've been a major factor as well. So we suddenly found ourselves without a, a driver. So it wasn't us that said goodbye to Carlos, it was Carlos that said goodbye to us. But he was a really lovely bloke, but not like your normal Formula One driver
1: not like Alan Jones. Actually, one more question about AJ is, were you frustrated in any way that it wasn't AJ who won your first race at Silverstone in 79? Because of course he was leading and then he had to retire and it was Clay Regazzoni who got that win. But did you in any way feel that the wrong guy got it?
0: No, I think we would have, uh, it would have felt more natural because Alan had been through a few difficult times with us. We had a, fairly serious car failure at Watkins Glen, which in itself, I'm not going to bore you with the story, but itself was pretty amazing because it happened on the Friday morning where a stub axle broke. And, uh, I said to Frank, we can't run the car in the afternoon. I had to understand what it was all about. Charlie Crichton Stewart, who I mentioned, he was very, very helpful, but we had to go and get them heat treated and increase the strength of the stub axles. But, uh, It was a pretty big accident, and uh, we said to Alan, we are running on Saturday morning. We we are going to run. It was because I had raised the strength of the stub axles through heat treatment, and I was very confident that they were going to be okay. And Alan looked me in the face, and he said, Patrick, can you tell me the car's not going to fail on me? And I said, Alan, I can tell you the car is not going to fail. And to say that, I, I was... 99.9% confident, but quite a difficult position to be put in. Actually, as it was, we qualified second or third and finished second to Carlos, I think, in the race. So it was a very good result for us in 1978. So we'd been through some fairly tough times. So, yes, but I think I knew that the car was quick in 79, so I knew we were going to win more races. It didn't really signify as that significant
1: that it was the first race. No, Not for me, anyway. Can you describe that 160.9 mile an hour lap in qualifying at Silverstone in 85? Heroic is the word I would use. What about you? It uh,
0: was pretty amazing. I mean, Keki could drive a car on the ragged edge. And uh, the problem is that the, in those days, actually... The tyres, very wide rears, good years, very solid, honest tyres, you could drive them hard and they'd stand up to it. Keke would not be good on the Pirellis that we have now. If Keke couldn't throw the car into the corner and pick it up, whether he'd be doing 180 miles an hour or 90 miles an hour, then it didn't suit him. So these Pirelli tires would not, it's not just that they're Pirelli tires, it's the fact that they're much narrower now, much skinnier, and the cars are a lot heavier as well. But Keke had been driving in some pretty awful cars. He'd been doing Formula Atlantic, driving for Keke, for Fred Opert in America, in Canada, all the way around. Wherever Fred Opert rang up Keke and said, I've got a car, I've entered in a race in Timbuktu, Keki would be there to come. So he had a very difficult introduction. He didn't have a wealthy family. He didn't have, I mean, apart from Fred Opert, who took him on purely because he was fast, Keki did not have a silver spoon, did not have an easy start. Keki was a true fin, a real swag. You know, he could have been a rally driver and would have been fantastically brilliant as a rally driver. There might have been a few trips into the the trees, but he would have been brilliant as a rally driver. He could drive the car at every angle. So uh, we had a problem. Stowe was very, very fast corner at that time. They hadn't sanitized Silverstone at that time. It was a real flat-out blind. And Keke said to me, the back end keeps stepping out in things. So I have to come off the throttle and I don't want to come off the throttle. If you can stop the back end stepping out and we were running absolutely maximum wing, there was no more we could do with wing. Uh, If we took front wing out of it, it would make him too slow in other places. And we stood the right rear up just before qualifying. We hadn't tried it at all, but because of the roll of the car, the right rear was running on its inner shoulder And we stood it up so that it went out of the pits looking like an Indy car with positive camber. And it was a bit magic. He could stay on the throttle through Stowe. And, uh, yeah, it was a magic, magic lap, you know. And I think it was a bit like Alan Jones at, I'm going to probably have trouble, Silverstone in 1979 when everybody was running around in qualifying doing high 12s or low 13s, and Alan went out and did an 11-something, bang, just completely missed out 12s. And you, you could look up and down the pit lane, and all the guys there with their pit boards were looking up and going, goodness me, we don't believe it, you know. And that lap by Keke was a bit like that. And was it raining as well? Was it starting to drizzle? I think that it was starting to sprinkle, yeah, but not at the point where it was... Damaging, but it was a. It was an. I mean, Keki was a very. He should have won very many more than. I think he won five or six Formula One races. He should have won twenty, really. And some of that was our fault, and some of that was his fault. But if he was on the track, he was on the limit, you know, and over it, <laughs> and res- <laughs> rescuing it
1: from being a bit, very exciting driver. Did you ever worry about his fitness levels? You know smoking drinking or did you not concern yourself with that
0: the proof on the track was that he could drive and if you look at the dijon race in whenever it was 1982 the only grand prix that he won in his championship year we had half a dozen turbo cars ahead of us all of whom i think kecky qualified seventh eighth ninth or whatever and as the race went on these turbo cars started to run into trouble, or they damaged their tyres, or in the case of the Renault, it was damaging its skirts and losing performance. But Keki was driving on the ragged edge. Any bit of film of that race, you'd see the car was never in a straight line. But the Goodyear tyres could take it. But, um, you know, he was an incredibly exciting driver. But I think he felt, if I use the term insecure. I don't think on the outside you would see somebody that looked as if he was insecure. He felt we were always still loving Alan Jones and hadn't taken him on board. It wasn't actually true. We loved Keke just as much as we loved Alan Jones, but I don't think Keke ever believed it. Is
1: Keke the first driver that you ever got properly angry with? Because I'm sure, I don't know whether it was you in the past or someone's told me about brazil eighty two the first refueling race, and that he got a right earful from you in the middle of the race. Is that true if I got that right?
0: It is true, and it's amazing you know when you're in a competitive position st- I won't bore you with the whole story because the refueling was there was a test in the week before the Grand Prix, and I had a call from Frank Durney had run the test technically, and Keki was down there. And Frank Dernie and Kecky got on the phone, I think on the Sunday morning before the week of the Grand Prix and said, Patrick, listen to this. This was Kecky. Bah, 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 bah. And, and rattled off some lap times and said, we must be able to refuel. So um, literally within two days, we got refueling equipment together, which consisted of a bare barrel and... Uh, I can't remember whether we got into sports cars at that time, but anyway, we got into quick release couplings and things. But anyway, by Tuesday morning, the stuff was all on a plane out to Brazil. And um, when he came in during the race for refueling, we started refueling. And then there was a, a big fire because the bolts around the hatch of the tank had come unscrewed because the tank had distorted when we welded in this uh, thing back at base and sent it out there. We put the fire out very quickly. Keki jumped out of the car, went to the back of the garage, took his helmet off and the mechanics spun up all the bolts and put some replacement bolts in there. So I saw that the hatch had been tightened up so there was no reason for the fire to repeat itself. So I went to the back of the garage and I said, Keke, put your helmet on and get back in the car. This was probably 30 seconds after he'd come in. He jumped out of the car like a -a jack-in-a-box, as he would when the car went on fire. And Keke said, I am not getting back in the car. I'm being a bit unfair in sort of thing. I have burnt my moustache. And he had a (laughs) (laughs) moustache. The flames had gone up. And all he could smell was burning hair. So, it, it's, and I said, Keki, get back in the effing car, I use the full term, and do what you're told. And Keki probably took one look at me. <laughs> I don't think I raised my fist. Probably took one look at me and realized I was serious and put his helmet back on, got back in the car. We bolted up. I said to Keke. Keki, Keke, I promise you the fire will not happen again. And we've done up all the bolts and replaced them. And out he went. And I think he got up to... Nelson won the race in the refueling Brabham, But I think he got up to second again after probably a 40 or 45 second pit stop, driving as only Keke could. We probably only did that one refueling stop in the middle of the race. It was incredible. But then sadly the car wouldn't start so we had to push start the car in the pit lane and uh, whatever it was the FIA decided they were going to take us out so they uh, took us out for push starting the car in the pit lane yeah
1: and Keke Rosberg always did what he was told after that uh, I
0: don't think Keke <laughs> no Keke's his own man but I think I was pretty robust and uh, <laughs> let him know what his job was. But uh, he was absolutely brilliant. You had to love him because he was, if he was on the track, he was on it in a big way.
1: Yep, spectacular. Did you see many similarities between Keke and his son, Nico, of course, who raced for you from what, 2006 to 2009?
0: Nico certainly had some of the characteristics of his father, but I wouldn't say he was quite such a swashbuckling Nico was probably, I mean, in the environment in which he was brought up. his family lived in Monaco. I'm sure he knew many drivers, successful drivers down in Monaco. I would say Nico was much more the calculating, thinking driver. Nico was heavily into the data. Keki didn't have time to look at data if we had any data at that time. There were certainly some similarities. But I would say Nico was not totally like his father in terms of throwing the car around in the same way. But then by the time Nico was driving, the tyres weren't as robust as they were in Kiki's day.
1: Can we just talk about the other world champions who drove for you? Let's start with Damon, Damon Hill. You pulled him out of obscurity in 93. What did you see in Damon back then? We needed a driver for the active ride car for a test program
0: that ran separate from, but in parallel to our race program. I forget how we first met Damon, even for the purposes of running our test car. There was certainly never any view that that driver would then go on to be one of our race drivers. And I forget, we had people like a very young Paddy Lowe before he went off to McLaren, came from outside of Formula One when he came to us. So he was very young and running the test program. A man called Simon Wells, who ran our R&D facility and was heavily involved in that. And it's quite possible some of those people were strong Damon Hill supporters. So Damon came in ran the active ride test program, was very thoughtful, analytical person, very disciplined. And I think as that test program went on, completely separate from the race program, in those days we weren't limited to when we, we could decide when we wanted to test and where, and we might be testing the race cars at a track and the same time we might be testing the active ride car, which was probably a car behind, in terms of type number, at a completely different track in in England or uh, elsewhere. And I think the reports that came back said Damon is pretty good. So by the time it became clear that it was pretty late on that Nigel said, I'm off, I'm going to do indie, And that's a bit of a story in itself. But it was Monza 92, wasn't it, when... Uh, Nigel said, I'm not driving.
1: Had he caught you on the hop? Were you, were, you, were you not expecting that press conference?
0: We had no idea. We had no idea that press conference. He, <laughs> Frank and I heard that he would not be our driver when he did that press conference at Monza. And that story is a story in itself, which I won't bore you with.
1: Well, no, uh, that's a story we'd, I'd love to hear. So had you even tried to do a deal with Nigel for 93? We
0: had... Done a deal and shaken hands, we'd made an offer. Nigel himself said, I want to sort out my 93, 94. Frank had sent the motorhome up to Silverstone for a test. We went into the meeting room at the back of the motorhome where Frank had his standing frame. And we did a deal with Nigel, agreed on the money. The contract was drawn up and sent to Nigel, who at that time lived in the Isle of Man. The problem was that Nigel went on and won the next race and the next race afterwards and the race afterwards and the race afterwards. And a few people got into his ear and said, Nigel, you are worth more than you have contracted with Williams for 1993. Anyway, whatever it was, they they, uh, bent his ear. And Frank and I were pretty unhappy because we felt that we'd done a deal with Nigel Uh, We'd all shaken hands and that that deal should have gone ahead. Nigel felt he wanted more money. A meeting took place, and uh, by that time, Nigel had some advisors who we felt were not operating in his best interest. Anyway, whatever it was, it didn't happen. And so we didn't have a driver for 93. So we had Ricardo Patrese, who was a very fine driver, didn't really get on as well with the active ride car. He was a very fine driver of the passive car in 91. He didn't really like the feedback and the feel of the 90, of the active ride car, not because it was active ride car. It was our particular system. And Damon had been testing and doing fully competitive times, very disciplined, very fit, very capable. And a number of people in our team said to Frank, you should consider Damon. Frank was always very influenced by star names in drivers and didn't really think. I mean, obviously, Damon was a star name because of his father, but he wasn't a star name because of Damon. It's a completely different story, but when Damon's father was sadly killed, I think the family money pretty much all went to dealing with the consequences of the aircraft accident, and Damon was running around London on a scooter, delivering pizzas and things. He, he had a very, very difficult entry into Formula One. I think it took some time for Frank to accept that Damon was quite the driver that he turned out to be. But eventually he did, when he could see what Damon was doing and when people who had persuaded me that Damon was up to it, like Paddy Lowe and Simon Wells, Uh, we all ganged up on Frank and Frank said, oh, well, okay. And um, on we went. Damon,
1: I'm guessing, must have been incredibly impressive in 94 because, of course, Imola was a very difficult time for everybody. and, And Damon was integral in leading people forward. Is that a fair assessment of what he did?
0: Obviously, after the accident on Sunday... The car was impounded down at Imola, Ayrton's car, damaged car, and Damon's car got back on the Monday. I think the Monday was a bank holiday in England. The senior engineers all came in. We had the data from the data recording on board, the car, Ayrton's car. Damon came in, and Damon was very involved in the analysis of the data, because obviously for Damon, he wanted to know what had caused the accident. I don't think he wanted to carry on looking at the data onward, because ongoing, there was a lot of analysis of the data. But once Damon had convinced himself that it wasn't the car that failed, which he did satisfactorily to his own satisfaction, Damon led the team forward at Monaco. Two weeks later, we were a one-car team. Our test driver, David Coulthard, came into the team for the next race, Barcelona, after Monaco. And Damon was... uh, You've got to remember, he was up against a very, very capable Michael Schumacher who had won the first two or three races. And um, Damon was integral in leading the team mentally out of the car as well as in the car. So Damon's personality was very strong in terms of leading the team out of a very difficult time. And through the circumstances were very complicated with Michael being banned for a couple of races but it ended up with us going to the last race of the year with one point or something between the two of them. So it was a it was a very, very stressful season, obviously, with the highest stress of all being the fact that Ayrton had been killed in one of our cars. So it was not an easy year at all, but for me, Damon's leadership of the team and his achievements on the track in '94 stand above his 96 championship year, obviously history will put him down as the 96 champion, but his achievements in 1994 were stunning. absolute stunning.
1: Lovely words. Patrick, what about Adelaide then? Adelaide 94. <laughs> how do you, how do you reflect on that? I, I had the
0: highest regard for Michael Schumacher. He was a stunning driver and a stunning person, and the people who operated with him and knew him as a person, which I didn't, still hold him in the highest, highest regard. But you've got to remember that we had been through, uh, actually it was afterwards with uh, Jacques Villeneuve at um, Chérez in 97, but anybody who sees the film at what happened at Adelaide could see that Michael's car was damaged in a way that he must have known that it was undrivable. And he started going down the escape road that went straight on from the right hand corner. And when he could see Damon, who by that time was probably four or five seconds behind him, he turned right and drove straight into the side of Damon's car. And anybody that knew anything about driving race cars knew that Michael deliberately took Damon out of that race. I don't think I felt totally aggrieved because with the death of Ayrton Senna, with the fact that Michael was banned from driving for at least two, maybe three races, all of which Damon won, I don't think I'd have felt totally happy with winning the championship in that year. But there's no doubt in my mind, and anybody who looks at the data and looks at the film would know exactly what Michael did. He turned right and drove right into the side of Damon's car, and Damon knew exactly what Michael had done. Meanwhile, Michael was an immensely competitive person. I think uh, Jacques Villeneuve knew what Michael could do at Chérez in 1997. Meanwhile, I don't want to damage. Michael was the most stunning driver, brought any team that he drove for around him, the people in the team around him, was a massive competitor. But, you know, if you look at, michael parking his car at monaco in whatever year it
1: was 2006 yeah
0: yeah he was a fierce competitor fierce fierce competitor and maybe that sporting side wasn't maybe quite as strong as many people would have liked it to be but he was a fierce competitor and i respect that
1: did you ever have a conversation with him about getting him in a williams no we never did
0: actually um I don't know why, but we never did. Whether Frank did or not, I don't know. But uh, I do remember having a short conversation with Michael, but it was in Japan after he'd won the world championship in the early 2000s. And by that time, he was a bit the worse for whiskey. as maybe I was. So it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a very organised, but we certainly didn't talk about races in 94 or 96.
1: <laughs> I think we were just being silly. Look, one final Damon Hill question. What happened at the end of 96? Why didn't you continue with him? Well, it was a major error and maybe egos
0: and things got in the way. But Damon had a habit of taking on, and this was very much, in 95, probably he should have won the world championship. Various things got in the way of him winning the world championship. But when Damon came back in 1996, he was as fit or fitter than Michael. Damon had put right any possible things mentally, I think in 95, mentally, Damon felt inferior to Michael. Over the winter of 95, 96, Damon put all that right. Whether it was fitness, being gurued by somebody, he came back thinking, I am as good as Michael Schumacher and I can beat him. I think that's very important for a a driver to feel psychologically as strong as any other competitor. But he had a habit of taking on some fairly unusual characters. And he took on a sort of manager called Michael Breen, probably rather unfair for me to mention his name, who, when it came to negotiating the contract for 97 and 98, it would have been at least two years with Frank, in Frank's office. Instead of Damon coming in himself, Michael Breen came in and he was not the most charming of characters. And he put his briefcase on Frank's desk. I think Frank was in his standing frame there. And I think he didn't, but he was the sort of character that if he could have put his boots up on Frank's, you know, if he could have put his feet up on Frank's desk alongside his briefcase, he would have done. But he was an arrogant piece of work. And he said to Frank, I won't mention the numbers, Damon will not consider driving for you for anything less than a figure that was five times his 1995 salary. And Frank, who was an astute piece of work, I think I had come into the office by that time, uh, and was probably standing at the back of the office, and Frank thought for an awkward silence, maybe it went on for two minutes, complete silence, and he said, Michael, I suggest you take your briefcase off my desk. The door is there. Please go away. Michael Breen has said, we've got a number of teams who are offering us this level of money, but we'd like to carry on driving for Williams. Very nice of him. And, and so Frank very calmly said, Michael, would you take your briefcase off my desk? The door is there. You can depart. And if you come back, with a more sensible request for a figure, I'm very happy to talk to you. And Michael Breen got up, closed his briefcase, took it off Frank's desk and went out the door. And uh, I sat down and Frank said, what do you think of that? And I said, I think it's a great pity that Damon couldn't come in himself because we could have actually talked to him, but we couldn't talk to Michael Breen. And Frank said, well, we better start thinking, you know, Michael Breen told us that Damon had offers from more than one other team at that level. We're not going to compete at that level. We better start thinking about other drivers. And uh, Harold Frenson was one of the other drivers. They had this idea that Harold, Frank had signed Harold Frenson well before. That was not the case. And I know it was sometime afterwards, because I remember having the conversation with Frank saying, we better start thinking about... Who the alternatives, but Michael Breen had been so confident that they were going to get that level of money that uh, we thought, well, Damon's not, not going to be for us, then he's going to go somewhere else. So uh, that was it. It was unfortunate.
1: That was it, indeed. Well, of course, he was Jacques Villeneuve's teammate uh, in '96. Jacques, now here's an interesting one you had the best car for much of the '90s. Why did you feel the need to go and get an IndyCar driver for 96 when you had pretty much the whole grid wanting to drive one of your cars? I think Bernie was becoming a bit
0: annoyed with the profile that IndyCar was beginning to get. And I think you've got to remember that Nigel had gone over to IndyCar and done the 94 and 95 season, over at Indianapolis, and because of that it was beginning to get quite a profile in Europe, and Bernie didn't like it. So Bernie rang Frank and said, there's this young chap, son of Gilles Jacques, who seems to be pretty good. I would like you to give him some tests and evaluate him for uh, a possible seat in in your Formula 1 team. Why did you feel the need to appease Bernie? I think there was always a need to appease Bernie. You've got a <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> you've got to understand, and it was before my time with Frank, but in the mid seventies, Frank kept Bernie alive. You know, it was Frank who would lend him an engine when Frank lended him out of engine. And when Frank said he didn't even have enough money to pay for the fee for getting his, his transporter across the channel, it was Bernie that would bail him out. So there was a very close relationship which I certainly didn't uh, understand and wasn't part of between Bernie and Frank. When Bernie would say, Frank, I want you to give this guy a run and see what you think of him. I don't think Bernie said you have to take him on. Bernie certainly said to Frank, I would appreciate if you would give him a test and you evaluate him because I don't like the profile that uh, indie racing is starting to get in Europe. And if I can take the championship winning driver and bring him into Formula One, then I'd like to do him. So if you can give him a run, that'd be good. So, but I wasn't part of that conversation.
1: And how long did it take Jack to get up to speed?
0: Jack was a very wise thinking driver. And I think we gave Jack 20 days of testing. It was quite a lot. And really through those 20 days, he was not really fully up to speed through any of it. But not by a long way behind, but half a second, maybe three-quarters of a second. But when it came to, but Jack was a thinking driver. When it came to competing in the same car with Damon, Jack was up to speed straight away. But through those 20 days of testing, I wouldn't say that he was right up to speed. So when Frank said to me, do you think we can take on Jack? Uh, I don't think I said no, but I said, Frank, this is the story. He's not really fully up to Formula One speed.
1: Frank said, I think he'll do the job when push comes to shove. And he did. And he was a quirky driver, wasn't he? In terms of car setup and the blonde hair that came in 97 as well. Yeah, it was very quirky. And for some
0: reason, he thought I was, well, I mean, we always got on, but he, he would huddle away in the corner with his race engineer, Jock Clear, and you you felt that they wanted to operate as a team outside the team rather than within the team. Jack very much wanted his people around him, and we as Williams had never operated in that way. So it wasn't the most comfortable environment because it was Jacques that operated in a way as if he felt that we were against him. We never were, but uh, anyway, we, we adjusted to... The way he wanted to operate but he was a quick and tough driver very very capable and when he needed to he could lay it on the line yeah
1: it's been wonderful to speak to you patrick really enjoyable just to relive some of those amazing moments thank you very much for your time okay thanks tom bye We've talked for an hour and a half, and yet I feel we've only scratched the surface of what Patrick experienced in Formula One. He's such an erudite and articulate man, and he clearly needs a part two. But there are so many highlights from what we've just heard. His account of that seismic 1986 season was unbelievable. First, there was Frank's car accident, then his 11 trips to Japan to be quizzed by the Honda Top Brass, and then the dramatic season finale at Adelaide. What a year! I also loved his account of Keke Rosberg's 160 mile-an-hour lap of Silverstone, as well as him shouting at Keke in the pit lane in Brazil, Get back in the car, Keke! But the line that will stay with me the longest is what he said about Damon Hill and how Damon's achievements in 94, after the death of Ayrton Senna, outweigh his title success of 1996. Very powerful words indeed. Patrick, many thanks for your time. It was great to speak to you again, and I hope to see you at a race soon. Please remember to send in any stories or thoughts that you have on Patrick. Tell me anything from his 40 years in the sport. And remember, I'll read out the best ones next week. Send them to me at Tom Clarkson F1 or use the hashtag F1BeyondTheGrid. Which brings me on to what you sent in about Jock Clear after last week's show. That was a really popular episode and many of you loved what he had to say. WH-400 got in touch with this. The podcast's over. Wait, wasn't it supposed to last all day? New to my bucket list, a day with Jock Clear. That was another great episode. Well, thanks, WH, for getting in touch, and I'm glad you liked the show. And Jackie had this to say. An absolutely amazing chat with Jock Clear. As a fan of Jacques from his Italian Formula 3 days, it was great to hear Jock talk about Jacques' talent, his loyalty and his sense of fair play. Mercedes probably wouldn't be where they are today without him starting BAR. Well, thanks, Jackie. And you're absolutely right on that last point. Without BAR, Mercedes in their current guise wouldn't exist. And Stephen Edwards sent this in. Jock Clear, Wow. That should have been a three-hour podcast. I would love to hear all the juicy bits he didn't tell us. Come on, Tom, get him back on as soon as possible. (laughs) I know, Stephen. Jock was fantastic, and I told him at the time that we needed a part two. So let's see. And Jockle Helps had this to say just started following beyond the grid this season fantastic stuff but your most recent guest jock clear was absolutely brilliant and the best yet his impersonation was hilarious too well thanks for that and now that you've heard the real patrick head what do you think of jock's impersonation now and let's end with this from chris tritterberg just finished this week's pod with jock clear i'm a devoted listener and this may be my favorite episode yet the conversations were wonderful and the insight he offered even better hard to believe Jacques had just 22 millimeters of throttle pedal travel i know it's mad thanks chris for getting in touch it's great to hear from you i could read out lots more messages because we received loads But we'll leave it there for now. And thanks to everyone who wrote in. We love hearing what you have to say. Well, that's it for another week. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Patrick. And don't forget to send in your thoughts and stories on him. And as ever, I'll be back next week with another great guest from the world of Formula One. So see you then. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audio Boom. Until next time, keep it flat out.